Bam 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 Hi everyone, welcome back to Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less. I'm Misty Stinnett. And I would say I'm sitting Lisa across Linky. from me. Yeah. <laughs> I would say sitting across from me is Lisa Linky, but today we are doing something a little bit different. We're trying a whole new recording platform. Um, Sav did not do anything wrong. What we want to say. <laughs> First, let's be clear. First, let's be clear. Sav is an angel walking among us, and he's the truly, absolute best. Truly. Uh, but and facilitated Lee, this for us because he's a damn dream. Yes. So Lisa and I are recording this um, during the coronavirus uh, outbreak. And the idea is that we are trying to be responsible citizens and socially distance ourselves from each other and, and everyone thank around God, us. Because of technology, we're capable of doing so. Yes. And so Sav set us up on this amazing um, remote recording platform. So if the audio quality sounds a little bit different today, that's why. If there's a weird lag and I'm not getting all of Lisa's bits, that's definitely why. It's not because (laughs) I'm not (laughs) in tune with her jokes. Um, So that's our little caveat. And this, this may be the way that we record the next few episodes. So thanks for your patience and thanks for being responsible citizens and washing your hands. And yes. self-quarantining and doing all the things we need to do to take care of our, our fellow peeps. Yeah. So, okay. So if this is your first time tuning in, this is Go Help Yourself, and this is a Full Frontal Friday. So on yes. Full Frontal Fridays, we release two episodes a week, a mini-sode on Tuesdays, a full yeah. book review on Fridays. Yeah. And our goal is to read the book so that you don't have to. Um, we want to give you the tips, the tricks, the highs, the lows, the ins, the outs, uh, so that you can get all of the incredible self-help, life-changing perspective that everyone around you has been like, it's time, do something, go to therapy, do anything, right? Uh, And just under an hour. Exactly. Who doesn't love therapy in under an hour? Wait, all therapy is under an hour. Oh, thank you. (laughs) <laughs> Never mind. So uh, we're here for you. And if you love what you're hearing, go buy the book. If you hate what you're hearing, you know you can skip it. It's not for you. And you're welcome. Also, if so, you love what you're hearing, it's because you're hearing Misty and Lisa in their homes. So my dog Zoe has had her breakfast and has finished yeah. chewing on her bone <laughs> for now. Uh, and it Same. Like she's going to settle in. Thank you. Yes. Same. I stopped chewing my bone just before we started. (laughs) (laughs) But if you, you know, we are not the friendly confines of Fairfax Village Studios. We are in our own friendly confines. Mm -hmm. And I've made sort of a um, pillow fort around me for sound purposes. So you all can let us know how it's going. Oh, I didn't at all. I'm just letting it hang. Like, um, like as I'm not wearing a bra. So let's, let's move forward. (laughs) Let's move forward. Lisa, what do you have for us today? Okay, Misty and listeners, today I am bringing you Talking to Strangers, What We Should Know About the People We Don't Know by Malcolm Gladwell. By Malcolm Gladwell? Yes. Oh, I didn't know this was by Malcolm Gladwell. What? Sixth sixth New York Times bestseller out of six. God, what a slacker. What a slacker. (laughs) I have like 12 Um, New York Times bestsellers, so like get on my level, Malcolm. I have like 12 New York Times bestsellers sitting on my book, on my bedside table. Thank you. Ready to read. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. This was just released last year. Um, Pricing. The Kindle is $15.99. Audible is $30.79 or one credit. It is narrated by Malcolm Gladwell. The hardcover is $19.84. The paperback is $19.84. Yeah, thank you. Wow, the paperback what a book. is 1893 and it's 401 pages. And Misty, you are going to get a beautiful view of what Miss Zoe is. Uh, we're also video chatting so I can see everything that's going on in Lisa's. Okay, Zoe is like fully on her back, like arms up. What do you call that? Is that like a It's as though she's been stunned by a predator. <laughs> it's like the position you want to assume when you're you're um trying to get away from a bear. Well, she's also just like scratching her back and she's like, please, she's been out twice. She's had her pills. She's had her breakfast. The world uh, is golden. She's high. She's fed. Let's she's do high, this. She's high. She's fed. That's great. <laughs> um, um, you, I'm going to give you, tell you a little bit about Malcolm Gladwell. Please this do. Is from his website and from Wiki. 
Uh-huh. Malcolm Gladwell is a Canadian journalist and author of five other New York Times bestsellers, The Tipping Woof. Point, Blink, Outliers, What the Dog Saw, and David and Goliath. Mm-hmm. They sound familiar. Yeah. We've all, I think, read Blink and Outliers was also great. Uh, yeah, out, Outliers, I think, is the one I'm the most familiar with. That's where we And isn't he, isn't he the one who coined the 10,000-hour rule? Yeah. 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 He cites a, a study that I often say he incorrectly cited the study. Right. Uh, he graduated <laughs> with a bachelor's degree in history from the University of Toronto, Trinity College in Toronto, mm-hmm. and has been on the staff of The New Yorker since 1996. Wow. His, uh, gla- his books and art- articles often deal with the unexpected implications of research in the social sciences and make frequent and extended use of academic work, particularly in the areas of sociology, psychology, and social psychology, which is also why I love him so much. My, my bachelor's degree is in sociology and my minor was sociology. Yeah, so I mean, interesting, though, psychology. that his degree is in history because how did he get into all that stuff? Well, he, I think he, he wanted to be in journalism from the get-go. Like, he interned mm-hmm. at the Washington Post? Somewhere? I forget, somewhere. Uh, anyway, he is also the co-founder of Pushkin Industries, an audio content company, hello, that produces the podcast Revisionist History, which is amazing. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard it. Yeah. Uh, which can, reconsiders things both overlooked and misunderstood, and Broken Record, where he, Rick Rubin, and Bruce Headlam interview musicians across a wide range of genres. Gladwell has been included in the Time 100 Most Influential People list and touted as uh, one of uh, foreign policy's top global thinkers. Wow. So Those are some credents, if I've ever heard them. Yes. I just abbreved the word credentials. Are you guys here for this? A brief? Credents? Credenza? Um, I, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just show you the title of the book. And Missy, I listened to this book on Audible. What? You never it, listen to books. I never do, but my best friend Sarah gave me a six-month Audible subscription for um, my uh, for Christmas. Thank let's you, see. Sarah. Can you describe, let's see, can you describe the cover? Yeah. By the way, is it read by Malcolm Gladwell? It is. That's why it's How's so his expensive. voice? He has a delightful, high, like, Hi, like a like a tenor voice, and it's gorgeous. Oh, it's not deep. It's like it's very soothing and wonderful. Lovely. Okay, so talking to strangers, there is a little blue thought bubble and a yellow thought bubble, and they're overlapping. And I can't read the words in the green. It's almost thought like bubble. a Venn diagram. It's what we should know about the people we don't know. Great. Yeah, yeah it's very simple. Um, I like it. So I got Good the unabridged version read by him, and it was ten plus hours. Good for you. I, I, I enjoyed listening. Oh, let me say two things. I enjoyed listening to this book. <laughs> I don't enjoy listening to books that I have to present because then I had to go back and in audible, you can save clips and make notes, but yep. I listened to it in the car. So like, I didn't have a lot of notes on my clips. So basically I had to go back and re-listen to a lot of the book and yeah. I'm not a fan. It's a whole thing. I'm not a fan. It's a whole thing. I know. It is. So I, I, I appreciate what you do and I don't understand it, but Thank you. here's the reason that I am going to pitch that. If you want to um, consume this book, it needs to be consumed in audible content in an audiobook format. Because really? Because wherever possible, he includes actual clips of what he's talking about because it's constant case studies and historical events to frame oh. these theories that he's talking about. And so you hear interviews, you hear um, video clips, you hear it, it's... It's true. So it sort of comes to life in a way that oh it my wouldn't God. just in on a way the page. that just reading it couldn't couldn't do. That's so interesting. I really feel like with that and then with what David Goggins did and his highly toxic no one should read it book can't hurt me <laughs> that we have an episode on. Um he also did sort of a podcast slash interview slash audiobook. And I really yeah. feel like there is a trend towards mixing up the traditional audiobook format from what we've yes. seen. That's really interesting. Well, I just feel like he is a storyteller at heart. He's a historian, mm. right? And good right. historians are good storytellers. And so a journalist, right? He's truly wonderful. And the way that he thinks about things is is great. If you've ever read any of his books, it's wonderful. Yeah. You know, the tipping point is about how ideas stick and how large communities can be before they get out of kind of before you feel out of touch. Like he's really got a grasp and and good content. So here are the table contents. The first section is called step out of the car. And then he has five parts. Um, And each part 
is multiple chapters, um, but I'll tell you uh, what these chapters cover. Part one is Spies and Diplomats, Two Puzzles, Fidel Castro's Revenge, and Getting mm-hmm. to Know Der Führer. Wait, two, what? What? Yep. This is not talking to straight. Okay. All Part right. two, Default to Truth, The Queen okay. of Cuba, The Holy Fool, and Case Study, The Boy in the Shower. Part three, tra- uh-huh, Transparency, <laughs> The Friend's Fallacy, a uh, parenthesis short explanation of the Amanda Knox case, and Case Study, what? The Fraternity Party. Part four, did I say part four for that? That was part three. No, part four, Lessons. And KSM, what happens when the stranger is a terrorist? And then part five, coupling, Sylvia Plath, case study, the Kansas City experiments, and Sandra Blant. So. Wow. It's, it's, I mean, if I would have said to you, what do Sylvia Plath, Hitler, the TV show Friends, and Fidel Castro all have to do with each other? The answer uh, uh, is that he weaves them together beautifully in this book. What? Also, I the title of the book makes me think it's pretty benign. Like, here's how to, like, expand your community and talk to strangers. But after hearing what you just read, this sounds like a volatile <laughs> and comprehensive book. It just sounds very um, dangerous. Do not be scared of this book. Uh, it is... Great. It's great. Um, and, uh, <laughs> okay. I, I think we'll learn as we go. Let's dive yeah. in. <laughs> but he, here, here's, here's why I can't kind of, here's why I want everyone to truly buy it and listen to it and listen to it through the, through the audio that he gives in the book. And which is why I think it's so expensive because he's reading it. And also it's just so good. Um, because even like some of the stuff that they, reference is through for privacy policy reasons they can't play so they have actors read it and so like that's cool you you get to learn like you're really learning but the whole premise of the book is using let me start by talking about the the intro and maybe i'll figure out how to say it so the intro is called step out of the car and this is all about sandra bland who you may remember was stopped in um texas i believe um she was just moved from chicago and stopped in texas and was uh she's a a big case for black lives matter activists and that she was stopped for failing to use a turn signal and then it escalated she ended up being um, arrested and then she hung herself in her jail cell like three days later. So this intro is all about putting into context how this interaction between two people who did not know each other went so horribly wrong. And he puts it into the context of the greater setting of Black Lives Matter and police killings of African-Americans. And what I'm saying is like, what's cool about this audiobook is that whenever he can, he uses the actual audio if it's available. So just as a trigger warning for people, there is actual audio of this police stop. There is discussion okay. of pedophilia. There's discussion of um, uh, a sexual assault and rape. And um, so be aware of that. Um, but the way that he frames it is just kind of a new and different way for us to think about tackling these issues because we're not tackling them. Do you know what I'm saying? Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's not what I was expecting from the title of this book. I know. And so yeah. that's why I think it's masterful. He's a masterful okay. storyteller and journalist. Sure. Okay. So part one, Spies and Diplomats, Two Puzzles, Fidel Castro's Revenge, and Getting to Know Dear Fuhrer. Thank um, you. So basically this, he's kind of outlining two puzzles for us. Puzzle number one, when we're talking to strangers, why can't we tell when the stranger in front of us is lying to our face? And he references about how in the 60s, Cuba totally pulled one over on the CIA and had double agents all over the CIA. And Cuba made a documentary about it and aired it in Cuba. What? It's fascinating. I have to watch this. Well, it's, well, I don't know if you'll be able to get a hold of the documentary. (laughs) I know a guy. But it was basically, so, and especially like, how is it that these people who are trained in interrogation cannot tell 
when someone is lying to us, when your double agent is in your midst. Um, And then it's a whole long story and it's worth it. I I would buy the book just for that because the whole time you're going, no, no. And then puzzle (laughs) number two, how is it that meeting a stranger can sometimes make us worse at making sense of that person than not meeting them? So for example, well, for example, pre-World War I, uh, World War II, many people went to visit Hitler to try to get a sense of him. And okay. the people who went and spent time with him were absolutely fooled. Mm. He convinced them that he did not want to conquer all of Europe. Mm-hmm. And it was just like people who didn't spend time with him got a much better sense of him and had a, a more accurate idea oh, of what oh, he was Oh, I going see what you're do. saying. Okay, that's really interesting. So each of us believes that the information we gather from a personal interaction is uniquely valuable. We look people in the eye, we observe demeanor, and we draw conclusions. And we, th- we think that's better than seeing someone from a distance, you mean? Or just the information that's out there. Right. Okay. So yes. a Harvard economist um, invented this algorithm for bail applications. So this computer looked at over a half a million cases over five years and based on data points alone made a better guess about who should be given bail and who would violate parole based on case history. Than humans? The computer never saw the person, was better Mm -hmm. at predicting if the defendant would violate parole than a judge who met the defendant face-to-face. Oh, my God. Are we moving into a a virtual justice system? Well, no, because it's not a perfect system either because the judge can see when somebody's in a mental health crisis, right? Like Mm -hmm. the judge can see a lot of things and tells that like the computer can't, mm-hmm. but you know, they have access to the defendant's record and previous offenses, but the extra information is also contributing to the judge's wrong decision. Right. So these are these two puzzles. Okay. okay. Yeah. So part two is the default to truth. So we have, so he doesn't, of- so he just introduces these puzzles. He doesn't have to actually answer them for us yet. Well, the puzzles are kind of like the overlying art, uh, art to the whole story. Like, okay. These two things are, human, human difficulties. And then he's going to provide some, some, some context as to why that's true. Like, okay. uh, why we, why okay. we struggle. So, um, part two is default to truth, the queen of Cuba, the holy fool and the case study, the boy in the shower. So he now tells a tale of another Cuban spy in the CIA, Anna Montez, who worked at the defense intelligence agency and in retrospect acted brazenly, gave so many red flags in her behavior no one suspected she was a spy, but she was a, she was a spy for Fidel Castro from day one. Anytime they questioned her, she had a good answer. And they called her the queen of Cuba because she knew everything about Cuba and was like the resident expert on Cuba. Wow. So basically he comes to the conclusion that the issue with spies is not that there's something wrong with them. It's that there's something wrong with us. What happens is that doubts trigger disbelief when you can't explain them away. Okay. So we have doubts, we have doubts, we have doubts, but we don't doubt the person until we can't explain them away. Right. So if there's a good explanation, we're like, all right, that tracks. That must be true. So Professor Tim Levine um, was conducting hundreds of versions of the same psychological test. He was a a psychology professor. Mm -hmm. Subjects are paired. So this is the basic thing. Subjects are paired up and given a supervisor um, to do trivia. When the supervisor leaves, they explain, like, if you do trivia and you answer these questions right, um, you'll get money. Mm -hmm. And and then the supervisor takes calls, like, excuse me. Um, And when the supervisor leaves, the partner, who's a plant, turns to them and says, I need this money. I think the answers are right there. It's up to the subjects whether they cheat or not. Um, And later, the subjects are interviewed about if they cheated. And in about 30% of the cases, the subjects do cheat. And he wrote a book about it called Duped. And he's like the foremost expert on why people lie. Okay. So he has carefully constructed a unified theory of deception, says Gladwell, from the insights he gained in that first experiment and the multiple times he's repeated it. The obvious liars we can spot right away. The ones mm-hmm. who stumble over their words, they correct mm-hmm. themselves, right? And they're sweating and they're over-explaining. You got it. But like when are, I asked you why you pooped in the corner of the studio that one day. I don't know. I don't know. How do you know it was me? Uh, you're the – I was with Sav in the other room and it was just the I, three I, of us I, I, in the I, I, Maybe a ghost pooped in there. 
I don't think ghosts have bodily functions anymore, hence I, being I, ghosts. I, my poop doesn't look like that. I poop in lots of places, and I don't think my poop looks like that. <laughs> so it's obvious that I'm lying. So yeah. we're great. The obvious liars we can spot right away. So, um, but we are bad at detecting good liars. Lisa. We're bad at detecting good liars. Yeah, that's right. Lisa, um, why did you poop in the corner of the studio? Let's see. First of all, I'm offended that you would even suggest that I have the impropriety of pooping inside. I poop in a potty like I was trained to since I was two. In <laughs> fact, I think that he who found it, the fox is the finder that the, the smells right behind her. I think it's you. I think you're the person who pooped. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on a crusade until I prove it. It's, it's possible that it just slipped out. You're there right. you go. See? So we're bad <laughs> at detecting good liars. So mm-hmm. it seems that over evolution, it would make sense if we were good at detecting liars. Like, shouldn't it have favored people who have been able to pick up subtle signs of deception? Mm-hmm. But it hasn't. Okay. The average of picking liars out of this. So then, so then the cool part of this study is that the interviews after when they were asking them, did you cheat, um, mm-hmm. was taped. And then there's a follow-up study where you watch the tapes and you, you ask who's lying or you, they're asked you who is lying, who is lying. We're, we're only able to pick out liars 54% of the time. Does this book teach us how to lie better? Cause that's what no, I'm here for. It does no? not. Okay. Um, we are so bad at detecting lies. All of us, including people who were trained to detect lies, police, therapists, judge, CIA officers. But why? Why are we so bad? So here's why. Here's the first thing. Teach me it's to lie. It's called the truth, truth default theory. Okay. If I tell you that your accuracy rate is around 50%, he says, mm-hmm. the natural assumption is that you're randomly guessing and that you have no idea what you're doing. Right. But this is not true. Oh, we are much better than chance at identifying those who are telling the truth, but much worse than chance at identifying those who are lying because okay. we have a default to truth. Our oh. operating assumption is that the people we are dealing with are honest. Right. So like in the dating world, every time you swipe right on someone, you're like, I'm assuming this is my person and they're amazing and they're not going to ghost me and they're not going to say something wildly offensive at dinner and they're not going to pretend they forgot their wallet to, to you know, when the check comes. I would tweak that a little bit and I would say I'm assuming that the, the shirtless selfie they took in the mirror is actually them. That's mm-hmm. actually their their Even though their heads cut off on. and you can't that's right. see. That's yeah, right. and that's that's their Tesla that's in the background of the the right. sun in the fun so, shot. Levine says that the even the subjects in the experiment should catch the lie in the entire setup of the experiment, right? Mm-hmm. Their students, they signed up for a psychological test. They should know right away that mm-hmm. the person who's like, you will get cash if you participate. Oops, I have a call. Excuse me. They should know that this is the setup, but what they never catch is the partner who is part of the setup. They never suspect the other student. Interesting. Because our default to truth theory is that we assume people are telling the truth. Right. And there's this sort of like, oh, I'm here under these circumstances, so you must be here under these same circumstances. That's right. That's right. Okay. Okay. So he says we need a trigger to snap out of truth default theory. We fall out of truth default only when the case against our initial assumption becomes definitive. Oh. Right? So that's how the Queen of Cuba is allowed to operate in the CIA for years because we keep explaining away her behavior and she always has a good answer until it's definitively proven. Right. Not a so sliver like, of doubt, not a suspicion. Yeah, well, maybe he hasn't called me because he's just been so busy, you know? Like, he did mention that his sister's cousin's dog was feeling sick and he might check on it. And, like, maybe the reason he hasn't called is, like, he could have broken his phone. Yes. Uh, So until until you're, like, he put up a photo of himself engaged now to someone else since our second date. He said, exactly. He says, we don't act like scientists slowly gathering clues and evidence before reaching a conclusion. We do the opposite. We start by believing and we stop only when our doubts and misgivings rise to the point when we cannot explain it away. So So, is he saying we should trust our gut instincts? Like without having like definitive proof? 
No, because your, tra- your gut instincts is that you, you believe what people are saying. Hang on. But you have it's doubts. You have doubts, but then you sort of default into this theory. Well, right. you hang on, hang on. Okay. Hang on. Okay. Okay. So he says, this explains a lot of otherwise puzzling behavior, like the Stanley Milgram's obedience experiments where people were giving shocks to somebody in another room. Mm-hmm. 51, 56.1% of the, of the participants fully believed the learner was getting the shocks, but mostly when the learner came out of the other room and put on a little act. Oh. So like afterwards the person came in and was like sweaty and was like, thank you for stopping. And then they were like, I didn't think it was real, but then I, you know, I did. So our truth default is that we assume people are telling the truth. What was that experiment that someone in one room was shocking someone else? Oh, it's a very, very famous experiment. Um, well, I don't obedience. know it. It was, okay. uh, it, well, it was after um, <laughs> World War II when we couldn't fathom the idea that people were just following orders. So they set up this experiment where a man in a white coat was testing memory. And um, uh, in the next room, this person was attached to like an electric shock. And this person, the subject, was asking questions over like an intercom. And they would ask them a question. And if they didn't get the answer right, they had to hit a shock. Oh, my God. The actor next door would be like, ow, you know, like, and then the shock levels would rise. And it was all an act. And like, it's, it would never be allowed today because it was very torturous for a lot of the participants. But right. um, anyway, it's a whole, it's a thing you should explore. It's very exciting. Okay. Anyway. Okay. So it, the question isn't, do I have doubts? But a better question in answer to your question earlier is, are there enough red flags to make me question enough? Okay. You, you believe someone not because you have doubts. You believe them because there aren't enough doubts to make you not believe them. Okay. So doubts are not the enemy of belief. They are its companion is what they were saying. Okay. So it's sort of like everybody. Yeah. It's not like you We're sort of like, well, everyone makes mistakes. Like it yes, doesn't, and people it's not do necessarily deliberate. Yeah. So the simple truth is that lie detection does not and cannot work the way we expect it to. Like in the movies, right? Okay. We... Including polygraphs, or you mean just like human to human? Just like in movies, it all it turns on a dime, yeah, in a courtroom, and we all yeah. change our minds. Right. But that's because a beautiful writer has been crafting a story, you know, that that makes you believe something until you don't believe it. Right. So accumulating the amount of evidence to overwhelm our doubts takes time. You have mm-hmm. you ask your husband if he's cheating on you, and he says no, but. You're in truth default to default to truth mode. So you believe it. But three months right. later, you see a charge on a bill and you just know. Yes. But it isn't that you just know. You've been slowly accumulating evidence that you've been passing off and brushing off until finally the amount of evidence overwhelms you to the point where you, it overwhelms your ability to default to truth. Wow. Okay. He also talks about this idea. So of it's like I walk fool. into the studio and I, I see you squatting in the corner. And I'm like, I'm just saving it for you to see. And you're like, Lisa, I don't believe it anymore. I don't, I don't believe it anymore. We've yeah, got exactly. you. It's here. Okay. Exactly. Got it. Got it. Exactly. Okay. So then he talks about the holy fool. So each culture has its version of the holy fool. And this is someone who does not exist in social hierarchies and they're free to blurt out inconvenient truths or to question things the rest of us take for granted. Okay. So in Russian folklore, there was um, a person who yelled at a picture of a painting of Madonna, I think, the Madonna and said it was real. And everybody was like, that's terrible. And then he threw a rock at it and it like faded into something else. And everybody was like, oh, you're right. Um, <laughs> so the boy who cried out the emperor had no clothes was a holy fool. Right. Whistleblowers are holy fools. Mm-hmm. And he talks about Harry Markolo- Markopoulos cracked the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme. He had doubts for a long time. He kept saying, this can't be right. This can't be right. This can't be right. And nobody believed him. Wow. So he goes through the whole thing with Bernie Madoff into great detail. He says, default to truth becomes an issue when we're faced with two alternatives. One is likely and one is impossible to imagine. This person has been a double, double agent for, for Cuba since day one of the CIA. Right. Or she's just incredibly knowledgeable about Cuba and has, when she was given a chance to go, um, a funded trip to go learn, she went right to Cuba. Right, right, right. Or this bumbling 
older soft man is either the the mastermind behind the greatest financial you know swindling scheme of all time right. or he's just not you know right. what i mean like right so, so we go with the odds imagine. yeah we go with the odds and default to truth Wow. Um, you know, Madoff could have been the mastermind behind the greatest fraud in financial history, but what are the odds of that? The statistics say right. that the liar and the con man are rare, but the holy fool sees them everywhere. So we need the holy fool, but we can't all be holy fools because that would be disaster, spending every second questioning and second guessing the behaviors of those around you. Wow. So yeah, Levine says the advantage to human beings lies in the assumption that strangers are truthful. The trade-off okay. between truth default and the risk of deception is a great deal for us. Mm-hmm. What we get in exchange for being vulnerable to the occasional lie is efficient communication and social coordination. And okay, so it's like a necessary risk. Yes, because when we give up on that strategy, the cost is much higher. If wow. everyone behaves like Harry Markopoulos, there would be no Bernie Madoffs, but there would be no Wall Street. Wow, okay. We wouldn't have, wow. like, we... Right. Because Harry Markopoulos also, there was this rule that like uh, some some sort of trade had to be reported to the SEC and within 90 seconds and the place where he was working, he knew they were nobody was doing it. And he just started reporting his boss, like every trade that was making. Like It's like, so we need both. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, it does. We need someone going, we need someone out there with some spidey senses being like, hmm. Yeah. Throw in some shade. So here he also goes. So then when he goes into a case study, he talks about how Jerry Sandusky at Penn State and the default to truth played in here. Okay. And it's, this is where they get a little muddy for me because it's difficult because, um, and it's hard, but I'm glad that he uses difficult cases to kind of bring these into So he's, so it's, uh, I'm a little confused on the messaging here. So it sounds like he's saying like, okay, this vulnerability of exposure to lies and untruths and deceptions is necessary for a cohesive society. It is. And at the same time, here's how it gets us in trouble. Yeah. Right? So like, what's the the messaging? I think, well, the message, well, the messaging isn't like a normal self-help book in that lesson one, take this and do this. Mm -hmm. He's building towards a bigger message, which we'll get. Okay. So that's part two. Part three is about transparency, the friend's fallacy, a short explanation of the Amanda Knox case and the case study of the fraternity party. So this section is answering how judges can be worse than computers, even with more information Um, about bail, setting bail. I, do you think the world's going to be taken over by supercomputers? No. Just like, like my net, Netflix algorithm is also the same system that tries me if I commit a crime. And it'll know me really well by then. It'll be like, she watches rom-coms, so my default to truth is that there's no way she could have committed Grand Theft Auto because she watches The Princess Switch and any other Vanessa Hudgens movie every chance she gets. So, like, that doesn't track with Car Thieves. I don't think I've ever seen a Vanessa Hudgens movie. Listen, let me tell you something. (laughs) Let me tell you something. Vanessa Hudgens, I I've still have never seen High School Musical, which is crazy because that was like very big uh, when I was growing up. But Vanessa Hudgens is so lovely to watch and listen to. And every movie she's in, it's like way too well lit, way too perfectly quaffed. But she knows exactly what movie she's in and she plays to yeah. it perfectly. So uh, uh, like last year, I put on The Princess Switch in the background where, yes, Vanessa Hudgens plays a double of herself, a, a regular ordinary baker who switches lives with a princess who just wants a normal day, sort of like Audrey Hepburn in, in Roman Holiday, except more. And I put it on. I was like, I'm going to put this on in the background just so I have like something to listen to as I write. And I sat down at my laptop. I pressed play. I sat down at my laptop, fingers poised above the buttons to start writing. And I stayed in that position for two hours just watching the princess <laughs> Anyway, that's my plug for Vanessa Hudgens movies. Come on the podcast, girl. <laughs> Thank you. Go ahead. Uh, okay, so we're going to talk about transparency. Transparency is the idea that individuals' behavior and demeanor and the way they represent themselves on the inside provides an authentic uh, and reliable window into the way they feel. Oh, sorry, excuse me. Outside, right. 
the outside. Pres- yeah. The way they present them, represent themselves on the outside provides an authentic and reliable window to the way they feel inside and to their soul. It's like we have to think that way if we're going to have a calm society. Yes. Ergo, when we don't know someone or haven't understood them, we believe we can make sense through their demeanor. We believe well-spoken, confident people are honest, uh, are honest and nervous, shaky people are not believable. Mm. So then he talks about the TV show Friends. And he, you know what this reminds me of, Lise? Yeah. Huh. Have you ever played the game Werewolf? Yeah. Any, anytime someone like has a shake in their voice or like sort of quietly says something where like, you seem nervous, you're lying, yeah. you're a werewolf, as opposed to just my like- My friends and I I'm... play the updated version of this game, Secret Hitler. Oh my God. It's so much fun. It's made by a guy who worked at Cards Against Humanity. It's the most fun. Great. Uh, and you get to scream, you're a fascist at the top of your lungs and context allowed. Yeah. I just love it. It's like, we're not, we're not thinking like, oh, they're just terrified of speaking in a group. And that's why they have the shake in their voice. Like we automatically assume they're guilty. That's right. So he talks about friends. The actor's performances are transparent. You can watch the show without sound and still understand the plot. We think that liars in real life behave like liars on friends. Spoiler alert. They don't. Mm. So this takes us back to puzzle number two. Judges have a window into defendant's soul, but are worse at predicting than computers. And here's why. When a liar acts like an honest person or vice versa, we are totally lost. Bernie Madoff was a liar with an honest demeanor. Oh, And so a Spanish anthropologist studied different cultures around the world, how they interpret facial expressions, and concluded that there is confusion about facial expressions across cultures, which proves then on a a more individual level, we cannot expect transparency. Right. This helps explain the Amanda Knox case in brief, and he does a great job breaking that down. I had forgotten so much about that case. Yeah, me too. But in, in light of the lack of evidence, police mishandling, like dragging her through the press, it took a ruling by the Italian Supreme Court eight years to, later after the murder to declare her innocence. Wow. Expecting transparency when someone is mismatched, as she was, can lead to incredibly wrong outcomes. Mm-hmm. So she was a quirky, weird, awkward girl. And they painted her as like this sex, you know, driven, murderous. And so when they interviewed her, when the police interviewed her, she was uncomfortable and stiff and cold. And they, it, it was, she was mismatched. So they, they thought she was a liar. Well, this is what happens. And I think we've talked about this on some other episodes. This is what happens when like a mother whose child was kidnapped or murdered or yeah. whatever, if she doesn't cry on camera, we think... Oh, she did yeah. Cause yeah. it's, it's mismatched from how we think the experience should go versus what they're just Exactly. Mm-hmm. He even plays an interview with Amanda Knox after she's been vindicated with Diane Sawyer. And Diane Sawyer is like, you can see how that interview you did doesn't look mournful. <laughs> it's yeah. like, but you know that she didn't do it. So it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Anyway. So right. Levine went back and did his follow-up exercise, watching the tapes of the interviews and figuring out if the subject was lying or not. He did it specifically on seasoned experts. Okay. On um, CIA interrogators, police officers, detectives, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. So when, when the liar was matched, uh, what he called a blushing Sally, right? Um, <laughs> They were perfect at detecting. Okay. When they were mismatched, like an Amanda Knox or Bernie Madoff. What's they coming were right, on the outside is not representative of what's on the inside. They lacked okay. transparency. Yep. They were right 20% of the time. Okay, this is terrifying for the implications That's right. for the justice system. He says this should terrify anyone who ever gets hauled into an FBI interrogation. They are hapless with mismatched senders of information. When nervous oh Nellie overexplains and gets defensive, the police officer should recognize that. Instead, the person in charge with making determinations may be expecting transparency. And here he brings up a larger issue, and I'll quote him. Is the legal system constitutionally incapable of delivering justice to the mismatched? Is this why a judge cannot do as well as a computer? 
Are we sending people to per, uh, are we sending perfectly harmless people to jail because they don't quote look right? We all accept the flaws and inaccuracies of justice when we believe they are random. But Tim Levine's research may suggest that these are not random, that we have built a world that systematically discriminates against a class of people who, through no fault of their own, violate our ridiculous ideas about transparency. It's, uh, this is so upsetting. And it's like, it's like the charisma myth also. If you have charisma, you're so likable. Your yes. likability, especially if you have this way of expressing yourself. Even if you're a fucking horrible person. Yes. And, and vice versa, you might be the most beautiful, wonderful person, but struggle to, to have those social characteristics that we value so much. And then we just put you in this terrible category and you suffer for it through no fault of your own. It's like the nature you're born with or, or the patterns you learned. And yeah. Oh my God. This makes me, how many innocent people do you think are sitting in prison right now? Well, it's interesting. Like, who can tell? And this this brings it in a totally different light, right? Like, yeah. so there's a little bit, this is the, I'm going to bring a little bit more up and then we're going to kind of gloss through the next section and leading to the final section. And uh, uh, But I want to get to this. Here we go. So yeah, he talks about the Brock Turner sexual assault case and how alcohol mm-hmm. is involved in a good percentage of cases. And they follow the pattern similar to Chanel Miller's experience, which yes. we- covered know my name her book a a couple like a month ago maybe incredible memoir um a challenge of these cases is reconstructing the event did both parties consent did one party object Mm -hmm. if the and he says if the transparency problem is huge for judges for police officers and trained experts then it is absolutely going to be a problem for teenagers and young adults navigating one of the most complex of human domains sexual, uh, uh, sexuality. Yeah. And I was like, that's right. Yeah. So then he, he goes into a lot, uh, about looking how statistically people view consent on campus and then throwing alcohol into the mix. And what we know now about truth default theory and transparency, he talks about this and then he kind of, he goes a lot into alcohol and kind of building his case that way. He talks about a man who spent his dissertation or his time in, I want to say it was a South American country with his wife, where they basically drank straight grain alcohol in large groups for entire weekends and got blackout drunk. But the context was that you were fine and nothing ever happened. It was just not that kind of a culture. It was really interesting. Um, He talks about how if you drink alcohol very quickly, the hippocampus struggles, and this causes simple memory loss all the way up to blackouts. Like if you do two shots of whiskey and then meet somebody at a party, next morning you might not remember their name because the the hippocampus is struggling. Okay. How quickly you drink alcohol can lead all the way up to the blackout. He talks about this guy who started getting drunk in St. Louis and then woke up three days later in a hotel in Las Vegas and had no memory. Oh my God. Because while the hippocampus goes dark, you can still function like a person. He took a cab to the airport in St. Louis, went to Las Vegas, uh, got a hotel room, gambled, partied, whatever, and then finally passed out. And when he woke up, literally had no memory of the past two days that he'd been active. active. That is, that is terrifying. So wait, how is, how is this relevant to, to, okay. Yeah. So, I struggle with this a little bit because it came at sexual assault from a different angle, like the social science angle, which I love, but also I was on edge the whole time. Wait, I was like, is, he, is, this is he be saying, yeah, I was going to say, is that what he's saying? Is that in he's the not. moment, some, some teenagers think, oh, I do have consent when they don't, or they're so misreading He's consent? not victim blaming. He's just looking at it from this angle. And this, it's interesting, he, he quotes this study where they ask college students, what should be done to intervene for campus sexual assault? And they talk about like um, men should, you know, men should uh, get consent. Women should learn self-defense. But they, when offered like, should we be a dry campus? They were like, nope. They don't take into consideration what alcohol does to their own decision-making. And he talks about myopia. So he says, quote, Respect for others requires a complicated calculation in which one party agrees to moderate their own desires, to consider the long-term consequences of their own behavior, and to think about something other than the thing right in front of them. 
And that is exactly what myopia that comes with drunkenness makes it so hard to do. Okay. So basically he's saying it's a, it's a, it's a perfect storm. Let me, let me finish this, this, this paragraph and see what you think. Okay. He makes this valid point that during a blackout, we don't know what we have done and we don't know what we are doing. Mm-hmm. So he says, and he says, it is possible that Chanel could have consented to Brock Turner in that moment. But he also busts Brock for saying that he remembered her consenting when he also said that he blacked out and that his story at trial was after months of prepping and he had none of that clarity on the night of his arrest. Yep. And he says she was lying on the ground, passed out when the Swedes found her. So he says yeah, so that- I, I think I think the moment you go unconscious, whether you have said I consent or done. I don't consent, it's done. It's it, consent's right. revoked if you're not conscious. And he commends her victim impact statement and says, any young man or woman going out drinking at a party or a bar should read this letter. He says, the bottom line is that negotiating intimacy is difficult sober and assuming transparency. And when both people are drunk and possibly blacked out, it's incredibly difficult to know exactly what happened. Yes. And he says, as long as we don't investigate the connection, as long as we don't investigate the connection between alcohol and consent with strangers, what happened to Emily, now Chanel, will happen again and again and again. Yes. So really what he's doing is saying we need much more funding to investigate this connection between alcohol and sexual assault and mm-hmm. to communicate to young men and women and people of all ages this connection between alcohol and sexual assault. And yeah. how alcohol impacts our brain and our decision making in this transparency and default to truth. Right. Including victims and perpetrators. Exactly. Okay. So while I was on edge that whole time, because I'm coming from a perspective of like rape culture, patriarchy. 100%. I know. I feel feel defensive of it too. Yes. He's coming at it simply from social psychology saying we don't study it enough. We don't give these people who are in this complex decision-making in truth, default theory and transparency. Mm -hmm. And then we add liquor into it. It's a problem. Well, it's and also problem. if somebody's mismatched and yes. you're making a move on someone and they're saying no, but the way they're saying it isn't indicative of their, you know, to you, it's not interpreted as a no, it's an interpreted as a yeah, like, right? It's tough. It's, it's, it's really- It's difficult, sober, it's a and com- almost- It's a complicated- Yeah. So uh, last part before the very end- Okay. This is Lessons and KSM, which is Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, which was the mastermind behind 9-11. Mm-hmm. So this was a hard section on transparency, default to truth, and what happened to him, uh, to KSM with an interrogator who would go to any length to get answers. Okay. He does describe what the Justice Department allowed in terms of waterboarding. It was truly horrifying. I'm ashamed of our country. Okay. And then he, he, here's basically his point. He, there was a I'm going to do this briefly. We have these programs around our country for our armed forces. They're called SEER, S-E-R-E, Survival, Evasion, Resistance, Escape. We teach our armed forces what to do in the event that they are down in another country um, so that they are not uh, captured. Wow. And uh, this social uh, psychologist named uh, uh, Charles Morgan a doctor, he was studying PTSD and he was basically pre- presenting somewhere and he was like, what would be ideal is to get a hold of people before they experienced a traumatic event and then track their cortisol and other markers. But like, how do you do that? And this yep. guy came up and said, I think I can help you. I work at a SEER program and we simulate these things. And this, this guy, Morgan was like, is it really going to be real? And this guy was like, come and check it out. So it's a, just a simulation, but the pretend there was like a pretend interrogation on Green Beret and Special Forces for just half an hour. And this Dr. Morgan was like, I absolutely saw PTSD. I saw disassociation. You had to like snap to get their attention. I saw some crying. I saw lots of stress. The cortisol and other markers in their body was on par with PTSD or major, like major traumatic event or like major surgery. And he was like, it's the uncertainty of the situation that was getting to them. Their internal alarm bells were going off in an uncontrolled situation, even though they knew this ends and I get to go home, right? Right. Yes. Right. So how he tested this, he gave them a complex drawing test. It has two colors and like halfway through you switch and give them a different color. And normally adults do it like this. They do the big outlines. When you give them a different color, they do in the details. Uh-huh. And children do, they draw basically left to right or top down. They start drawing. And when you switch the color, 
they, so it's like half and half. Yeah. When he did this on these special forces people, they performed the test like prepubescent kids. Their prefrontal cortex had shut down for a while from the stress. So this is scary information for anyone in the interrogation business. The process of securing compliance like they did for KSM might affect what they can remember. So the harder we work to get a stranger to reveal themselves, the more elusive they become. Because it shuts down. But that doesn't mean we we get to stop trying, right? Right. So, oh my God, it's so complex. It is. How do you ever get the truth out of anybody? How do you ever tell who's lying and who's not? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, is the thing. He says a second cautionary note. We need to understand that the search to understand a stranger has real limits. We will never know the whole truth. We have to be satisfied with something short of that. And the right way to talk to strangers is with caution and humility. Okay. Which is kind of the answer to your thing. Because it's different. Different strangers are different, right? Like if I'm talking to a terrorist who has potential information, I may think that subjecting them to fear is going mm-hmm. to get answers, but it might screw their prefrontal cortex and give me misinformation. So say that last sentence again before with before the humility part. Say what he said. So we need to understand the search to understand the stranger has real limits. We will yeah. never know the whole truth. And we yeah. have to be satisfied with something short of that. The right way to talk to strangers is with caution and humility. With caution and humility. I mean, especially in the context of interrogation, right? Right. This, so this does not at all, this book does not teach you how to make a friend. That's not what this book is about. No, because here we're in the last section. <laughs> okay. And there's one more context. I thought it was going to be like how to build a community and I'm still waiting for <laughs> Here we go. Well, it does kind of an inverse. Part five. How to tell if your spy friend is lying. Coupling. Sylvia Plath, case study to Kansas City experiments, and back to Sandra Bland. Okay. So this section was incredible in a few ways, explaining the concept of coupling, which is that two factors are required for behavior. Example, Mm -hmm. suicide is coupled. So trigger warning, there is suicide talked about here. Sylvia Plath and many women in England had what they called town gas in their houses. Um, in the, uh, I guess it was the 1900s. That's when she was, yeah. So, and suicide had car, or, excuse me, town gas had carbon monoxide in it. Oh, and great. so suicide went way up when town gas went up and way down when it was phased out and replaced with natural gas and had no carbon monoxide. And he goes through this beautiful thing about coupling, about how you need the, the impetus and the, um, tool, means, mm-hmm. yeah. And, um, and then he says, handguns are America's town gas. What would happen if the U.S. did what the British handguns did? Handguns are America's town gas? Yeah. Okay. What would happen if the U.S. did what the British did and somehow eradicate Americans' leading cause of suicide? So half of our suicides mm-hmm. are from handguns. We would wow. uncouple the suicidal from their chosen method and leave them to choose another method, which are much less, which are much less, much less less lethal. That's tough. Much Much less less lethal. lethal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A conservative estimate is that banning handguns would save 10,000 lives a year just from thwarted suicides. Oh my God. So then he talks about the inexplicable saga, he says, of the Golden Gate Bridge and the more than 1,500 suicides. A year? A year or to date? Total. Total. (laughs) That's too much. No other place in the world has seen that many people take their lives in the time period since it was built, right? Oh my God. Coupling tells us that the decision to commit suicide is coupled with that particular bridge. People come, have come from all over the world. I walked that bridge. Uh, my sister lives near San Francisco, Heather, my big sister. I walked that bridge and I thought, oh my God, the Golden Gate Bridge is going to be so great. I'm in San Francisco. The bay is so beautiful. But as you walk that bridge, there are so many signs that are like, don't do it. Suicide prevention hotline. Don't jump. We care about you. There's resources. Like it was so sad. When did you walk it? Uh, Five years ago, four years ago. So coupling tells us that the decision to commit suicide is coupled with that particular bridge. So this brilliant psychologist did a follow-up interview with some 500 people who attempted to jump, but were were unexpectedly prevented, okay, over like 50 years or something, and only 25 persisted in killing themselves some other way. 
Oh my God. That's like 5%. When did they install a suicide barrier? Uh, 2018. 2018, more than 80 years after the bridge was open. Why? Why did it take so long? Because people could not grasp this concept of coupling. He plays a lot of like people, like what what people said and what the editorial said. It was like, if people are going to do it, they're going to do it. Like they, we cannot. Right, right, right. They'll just find another coupling. bridge. They'll da 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 da. Not it's Our this specific means. Truth theory is that if you want to kill yourself, you're going to kill yourself. We do not understand this idea of coupling. Oh my god, it's fascinating. That, that's a hundred percent my assumption as well. Same, because we because we expect people, we expect them to be transparent. This is so confusing. This is a this is so it's confusing. revelatory. Here's the last thing. The Kansas City gun experiments. Uh, In the late 90s, Kansas City was, George Bush talked about how horrible it was. Like it was, crime was awful. Mm -hmm. Um, District 144 was the site for an experiment. Okay. The homicide rate was 20 times the national average. Mm -hmm. They had two ideas for curbing gun violence, going door to door. um, And also this guy said he could figure out who was carrying a handgun just from looking at them. They spent money. They had, they promoted it. Both of these two things failed. And it's funny to listen to them talk about sure. this. The third and final experiment was based on a quirk in the legal system. The fourth amendment protects you from unreasonable search and seizure. Uh, on the street, a police officer must have reasonable suspicion to frisk you. But if you are in your car, the standard is not hard to meet. Traffic codes give police officers hundreds of reasons to stop motorists. And once they stop a motorist, they are allowed under the law to search the car as long as they have reason to believe the motorist is armed or dangerous. So Kansas City took advantage of this. They used any pretext to pull over cars, search, and confiscate guns. Outside of District 144, for the 200 days of this experiment, crime remained as bad as ever. Inside 144, how much do you think the crime was cut by? Uh, 50%? Yes. Oh my God. Half in 200 days. This experiment caused officers and uh, police officer, police systems, police, what do you call a police force? Yes. (laughs) They started using Kansas City style stops Mm -hmm. and tickets and citations went up astronomically. He mentions in North Carolina over the course of like four years, they went up from like 400,000 to 800,000 a year. Oh my God. Which finally, brilliantly, he brings us to Sandra Bland. Okay. This is how she was stopped. People are using Kansas City style, right? Mm-hmm. He breaks down this interaction thoughtfully. He plays audio from the dash cam. It's hard to hear. He gives us background on Sandra Bland, who's the stranger, and the officer. He gives us background, and we get to listen to the interview of him with his superiors. Default to truth transparency and coupling all come into play. Mm. And basically he does a great job of wrapping up and tying it to what actions and steps need to be taken so that Sandra Bland doesn't become another name of police brutality against black men and women. (sighs) And it's basically a call to like, look at how these studies and how these interactions with strangers and how our expectations and how we move through the world uh, and our interactions with strangers has given us this, way that we see the world that is faulty and Mm -hmm. what we need to do in order to kind of change it. Yes. So that's that's the prescriptive part. So he's he's just sort of presenting all of these things. Yes. Like I can't even tell you, I was crying at the end because I was just like, this is so brilliant the way that he's done this and there's no way I can describe it. I just want everybody to listen to it. It's so, it's so fucking good. Lise, you did such an amazing job and it sounds like every single person in a position of authority should read this book. Police officers, so. judges, I, I mean, I and think, the layperson, but like especially the people making the decisions about who's guilty and who's innocent and who deserves to go to jail. I think so. I think it's it really reframed the way that I saw and think about how we are treating people. Did this book need to be written? Absolutely. 100%. Um, who is it perfect for and who's it terrible for? I think it's perfect for people who, um, 
I think it's perfect for people in positions of power who interrogate and who make decisions. Like you said, judges, CIA officials, police officers, simply because it will give them empirical evidence and anecdotal evidence, both that will require them to rethink how that, uh, how they think that their job functions and that they may actually not be doing it the way that they could or should. It's interesting. It's such a big challenge to the hermeneutical lens. Yeah. And the hermeneutical lens, uh, for, for those of you who are new listeners and are not LLLs, long-time loyal listeners, um, Hermes was the uh, messenger of the gods in Greek mythology. So any message Hermes delivered was through Hermes' own lens and yeah. altered by that experience. Um, and so yeah, we all have our own lens. Just the fact of being lens. human. Just the yes. fact of being human. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, is there anything that you put into practice from this book, Lisa? Um, well, we've kind of been uh, social distancing. <laughs> we but while been, I, you yeah. know, when I, I think it did give me a second, like when I had an immediate reaction to somebody's, uh, it, it helped like reinforce my own, like, it's not about me. That's about them in my own, in my own way. Just because like, I can't, I can't assume transparency. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. It doesn't behoove me. Absolutely. Um, and nothing has <laughs> has challenged my own uh, human character detection, my ideas of how stellar that is, uh, more than the game Werewolf. Because at the end, you find out who really was lying and who wasn't and who was innocent and who you sort of persecuted for <laughs> small yeah. things when they weren't doing anything wrong, yeah, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Do I have any homework from this book? Uh, you brought it up a couple times. It made me laugh. I would just love for you to think about an interaction that you had uh, in dating somebody recently, <laughs> and, and that that turned out where you maybe felt like you were deceived, or that they weren't who they said they were. And maybe go back and decide if it was a default to truth or a transparency issue on your own. You don't have to share it particularly, but I would oh, love yeah. to know if you were able I to I already have us. one in mind. Great. <laughs> so if you want to hear it. that, everybody, tune into the next mini-sode <laughs> and I'll report back. Um, so you said whether it's default to truth. Default to truth or, um, or know, a transparency, transparency issue. issue or even a coupling and that you were like, you know, it was I was ready to be on a date. We were at a perfect date location. So everything was right for me. And I felt like this, you know, I couldn't see what they were saying. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it, it's it's funny. I wonder if coupling also counts for like, have you ever had this experience where you meet someone and you go, oh my God, you remind me so much of my dear friend X, Y, or Z. And I, I find when I meet someone that like reminds me of one of my best friends, Corey or Allison or you, I immediately am like, oh, I love this person and I trust this person because they're yeah. like Lisa. Yeah. Kind of a thing. So I wonder if it works like that way. Like when you met Hannibal Lecter, but he looked just like me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was like eating some fingers and I was like, that's that's weird. Lisa but loves like, chicken fingers. Lisa loves chicken fingers, but those are like finger fingers, but close enough. Whatever. Fine. You get it. Um, is there this did was, I forget any questions? Uh, this was a hundred percent practical patty. Yeah. Not woo really woo at no all. Woo. No. Well, it's interesting though, because it does sound like there is an element of so if we are to really have a more peaceful society, which is, I guess that's still practical. It's not like. He, he did it in practical ways using social science and research. Yeah. Um, I would love to read it's his a beautiful, books. He's just it's brilliant. Just, I mean, I was in awe at the craft of storytelling and the way yeah. that he started. Wove takes you on all these different things. Like you're talking about Hitler, you're talking about Jerry Sandusky, you're talking about Cuba and Fidel Castro and Bernie Madoff and like all these other things. And then you, and friends, and then you end up with like, you forget time and time again, and then you end up back where you started and he makes such a compelling case. It's truly a beautiful, wonderful. Yeah. Record. It's cool that he uses global examples to then sort of affect what we're doing and interaction by interaction. It yeah. makes me feel like I can't trust anyone and I should just sort of go around being like, I hope you don't murder me. Well, you can, you do, but it's just to recognize when you are giving somebody the benefit of the doubt, recognize that like doubts are not, doubts are the companion of belief. Like we have mm -hmm. to have both. And it's just yeah. that we're so used to default to truth that you can stop now and think, okay, 
am I, is it that this person has a good answer for everything? Or is it that I just cannot believe the possibility that they are the next Bernie Madoff? It's, it's crazy. Cause it actually, this book makes me more skeptical. It makes me more skeptical. It makes me want to be a little bit more pessimistic, which is not a, it's not a bad thing, but it's like, it also empowers Fine. me to go like, well, I don't know if they're being transparent and they could be this thing that I just can't wrap my head around. So I'm just going to walk you away. Also be, can you also be more skeptical of the people that you automatically assume are telling the truth? Like yeah. police officers who say that the person was a threat when they shoot them in the back. Yeah. Again, makes me um, more skeptical. <laughs> I feel like a less optimistic person after this book. And I don't hate it. I think you should listen to it. It may be more, more optimistic. Okay, maybe I will. All right, right, everybody. With that, may your um, your questioning of your default to truth and your awareness of coupling and your transparency issues be abundant. Abundant! <laughs> Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less, was produced by Misty Stinnett, Lisa Linky, and Matt Sav. Our theme song was also written by Matt Sav. He's amazing. <laughs> do you want to get in touch? You do. Email us at gohelpyourselfpodcast at gmail.com. And you know you can also find us on the social medias, Instagram at gohelpyourselfpodcast, Twitter at podcast, or check out our website, gohelpyourselfpodcast.com. And if you liked our podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes to help other people discover our show. It's really the least you can do. And why don't you tell all of your friends? Bye! Bye.